0: Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have Candace Janet in the beach shack. Now, I met Candace over 20 years ago in unfortunate circumstances down at Bondo Beach. Candace decided to come down for surf that morning and became unconscious while she was still connected to her surfboard. Myself, along with other lifeguards, brought her back in to shore and then started resuscitation as she had no pulse, no breathing. She was basically dead in front of us. It's a pleasure now, though, to uh, get Candace to tell her story of 20 years ago. Now, let's sit back and have a listen to Candace's story. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. Now, it's a long time since I've seen this person, and it's a great story, a great outcome it's to do probably over 20 years ago now, and it was a resuscitation at Bondi Beach, but it's a welcome into the beach shack. Candace, how are you?
1: Good, thanks. And you?
0: Yeah, going well. Now, it's been, uh, what, 20 years, I reckon, since uh, the incident at Bondi?
1: Yep, about that. Yeah, close to that.
0: Now, I thought we'd start off with just giving the background on, on where you came from. You know, you were born in South Africa and then the journey to where you ended up in Australia. Yep.
1: So we immigrated to South Africa, and um, my family immigrated in '96, and I went travelling with friends because I just finished school, and I came in '97, and yeah, started living in Australia, got climatized to the beaches, and met a few people, um, and started seeing someone who surfed. Yeah, and kind of picked up surfing from there. Yeah, and that pretty much led me into the beach lifestyle, the surfy lifestyle that all the uh, Australians love. Um, I came from South Africa, which have, has very similar weather. Um, although because we weren't in Johannesburg, we didn't we weren't really surrounded by beaches. So I really took that opportunity of you know enjoying the beach life, and started surfing.
0: So you did start surfing and uh, enjoyed that. And were you living around the eastern suburbs at the time?
1: Um, yeah, so at the time I was living um, in Randwick um, and I used to drive up to Bondi. I actually used to um, run on Bondi Beach early in the morning. And then I used to often go for a surf in between work breaks or either in the, the morning or at lunchtime um, and started really enjoying kind of being able to have a break on the beach um, which you don't get in many places so yeah so that's that's what I really enjoyed
0: so let's paint the picture now back when the incident happened that was a you decide to come to the beach as normal to Bondi to have a surf yep
1: i decided to come to Bondi to have a surf and it was a really rough day and i actually had a sense before i went in something told me not to go in And uh, I didn't follow my my sense, uh, which was probably stupid. It was almost like a warning. Um, Man, it was a really rough day. I think even the lifeguards weren't in. That's how rough it was. And I sort of stood on the – it was quite an overcast day from memory. Um, And I was standing at the edge of the beach, and I thought, you know what, let me just – I'll have a quick surf. I'll go in, you know, and I'll come out maybe 10, 20 minutes Um, And I went in and, yeah, it didn't exactly come out the way I'd planned. Um, And, yeah, I got caught in a rip. I just remember um, standing up and then falling off my board and getting caught in a rip. And I think I let go of my board and I actually got sucked under. Like, I just remember being pulled under. um, And while I was underwater, I just remember trying to actually – trying to grab onto the string of my board but because it was so rough yeah I kind of obviously lost consciousness because I was under for so long and yeah the rest is history and then you guys pulled me out.
0: (laughs) Well I remember the call came through and it was a the board was tombstoning I could see the the board was just and that's usually a bad sign because we know that someone's attached to the leg rope uh when the board's tombstoning and uh we went out, the other lifeguards that were there at the time went out, grabbed you, and we realised we've got a signal to know that the person's unconscious and we need to call an ambulance and, and get all the equipment down to the beach. And so we set everything in, in motion and then we pulled you back to the beach and then it was just a no pulse, no breathing. We had to start resuscitation, which uh, was quite hard because you'd swallowed a lot of water as well. Yeah. So from there with the resuscitation, we had the defibrillator, wanted to shock a couple of times, which helped the situation. But there was a time there where I thought that we weren't going to get you back. It was a, it was a long process. You'd been underwater for a fair while. So that's not a good sign either the longer you've been underwater. uh, You had swallowed a lot of water and uh, the paramedics then turned up and we continued working on you to try and get you back. And, I think after I can't remember now how long it took, but after a certain period of time, the paramedics when they were there we we got a faint pulse. I think we started to get a pulse back and uh from there you went off to the hospital so and I think they used a a technique a new technique in there it was a, a a freezing type technique
1: yeah so when I think from when you guys pulled me out i think I think from memory. They said from the time that they spotted me underwater to getting me out of the water, it was about 10 minutes that I was under completely. So really, like I was quite close to brain damage. And then when they brought me in, because my temperature was so high, my brain um, waves at the time were like a stroke patient. So basically when your brain is affected, um, I think it was – level three or level six where is comparative to a stroke patient where there's no um response in no normal response in the brain. And what happened was because my temperature was so high and my head had swollen, when I arrived at hospital, the head of the ICU, there was a inner a cool machine, and there was only at the time two machines in the whole of Australia that were circulating between hospitals. And when I arrived, they actually were moving that machine out of Prince of Wales. And they were actually moving it on to St. Vincent's. And it was already on the truck. And as I had arrived in and they brought me in, the head of the ICU Doctor ran out to the car park and stopped the machine from leaving. So it was just very well timed the way that the whole thing happened. And they brought the machine back in and he said he needs it urgently. He think it may work on me. I was actually one of the first patients that they had ever used it on that was in the age range that I was at the time. So I was 25 at the time and this machine had only ever been used on really, really young patients or very old stroke patients. So there was no one within the age bracket of 18 to 40. Um, that it had been used on. And basically, it's called an inner cool machine. And what it does is they uh, put a gold catheter through your groin up into just below your heart. And it takes your blood out of your body and cools your blood to a hypothermic level and then repumps the blood, the cold blood, back into your body to bring down your temperature. And as they started doing that, slowly, my vital signs started coming back and my brain pulses started returning. And they started then seeing some brain activity and brain waves returning. And I think they did it for quite a few hours. I think it was quite a number of hours that they did that. They made sure that they they kept doing it until my body was cooled down and they had... Um, Obviously, the tinfoil on me and whatever else to help keep my temperature at a really low level. And then, yeah, my vital signs started coming back In in the whole time I was in a coma. And obviously, I had breathing tubes and everything breathing for me. But actually, after I um, came out of consciousness and I came out of the coma and they took the breathing tubes out, they actually had said that they were very surprised that it actually worked because of the level of no brain capacity that I had when I, when they were brought me into the hospital. Um, and they said when I started talking, they said that actually waited for me to talk to see if there was any brain injury or brain damage. They said that they could not actually believe that I came out of it completely clear with no brain damage because basically I think... In our age, age range, after it happened to me, a few, I don't know if it was a year later or a few months later, um, a similar story happened to a lady who was also in her late 20s. And they used the machine on her and she was under for a good 25 minutes. And um, yeah, her mother actually said, "If you," because she was a lawyer, her mother said, if you can't bring her back normally, don't bring her back. And they actually brought her back, same way as me, and she's 100% normal. And they actually said that they could not believe the two of us came back with no brain damage at all from this machine because based on the amount of time that we had been under, no brain waves when they brought us in, they could not believe that both of us returned to normal.
0: It's an amazing story. And just trying to think back to when I – was there at the beach and saw the condition you're in and and been under for so long because generally we get to people quite quite quick and this was a, a longer period of time that you're under obviously because of the conditions of getting you back in uh you're still attached to your board and getting back to shore in those conditions were, were quite treacherous so it was, a, it was a great job i can't remember now which lifeguards were in the water but i remember being on the beach when you came back in and. You know, we started that CPR, and as anyone out there knows, CPR—the idea is to is to keep the person alive, pump the oxygen in the blood around the body, in the brain, to try and keep the brain functioning. And you know, even I think when the paramedics arrived, they weren't—they uh, realised how critical you were, and to use this machine, and and it's a miracle that you know, if you had gone in, probably say ten minutes later that machine would have been on its way to St. Vincent's Um, and the outcome could be totally different.
1: Absolutely. Well, actually it was, they say that the reason I returned to normal was because of the rapid speed that everything had happened. It was almost like the machine hadn't left. And the craziest thing was the machine was on the truck to leave. And they said that there was actually a delay with the driver to take the machine. So it was almost like, it was meant to be there for me and they ran, the head of the ICU when I came in, ran out to the car park to get the machine. So it was because of the quick reaction and the quick thinking of all the people involved that actually saved my life and um, stopped me from getting brain damage because had the driver been there, the machine would have left and chances are I probably would have ended up. You know, either being brain damaged um, or dying. So it, yeah, and it could have been a very different circumstance.
0: Do you know how much this machine has helped people? Is it still around today?
1: Yep. So what happened was the machine at the time. So this happened in 2005, and at the time, the reason why they only had two machines was because. I think each machine was valued at about $600,000 at the time. And they didn't have the funds to have more machines. But what happened was after this had happened to me, the head of the ICU set up an organization to try and raise money to purchase more of these machines to allow them to save more people. And he actually asked me to speak at an event And I ended up speaking at an event, a huge charity event where they they invited quite big donors. And they ended up at that event from me speaking and auctioning products off, they ended up raising enough money to purchase six other machines. And yeah, since then there is, I think there is a machine of that sort in each hospital now. And obviously they're consistently doing things to purchase more and to improve the opportunity of I think also now that they realize that it does have an effect on people of all age brackets instead of just the younger or the older I think that that is the reason that they started fundraising because I think before this happened to me and the other lady who was also in her 20s, there was never much push for the machine because it had only ever been used on much older patients or, um, you know, much younger patients to save lives. And it was never, there was never a big necessity for it. However, when they started seeing the impact it had, you know, on, on people of all ages and that it can actually reduce brain damage in people who have, you know, got, I guess stroke patients or low vital signs or um, or brain signs, they actually realised that the machine was obviously um, quite necessary in most of the hospitals
0: permanently. And then you did come uh, back down to the beach after you did recover, and it was an amazing scenario. We're all there, and you you came down to greet us, and it was something that uh, for for us lifeguards, obviously our job is to make sure people have a good time at the beach and go home safe and everything. And when we have tragedies like that, the good outcome, it it's just makes what we do worthwhile.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it definitely for me now, I guess, thinking back to what had happened and thinking, had I not had you guys there, the outcome would have been very different. So, you know, it, it really makes you appreciate living in Australia and having the services you know that you guys provide because most people go to the beach you know with the thought of oh I'm gonna go have a swim and I'm gonna have a nice day they don't think you know these people are actually here there's people here to help save you and there's people here to make you know take care of your safety and you know, we're very lucky to be in Australia in that sort of environment because in a lot of different places in the world, you don't have that luxury. You know, once you get stuck in a rip, you die. That's pretty much it because they don't have lifeguarding services or, um, you know, the, those means. So, yeah, it's definitely – and also I think when I go to the beach now with my kids, you know, there's almost some comfort in knowing that – there are lifeguards there and, you know, there is help there if we need it. And I guess it's more of a comforting feeling going down to the beach, knowing that, that you know, we do have that circumstance. But at the same time, I also developed quite a big respect for the ocean that I never had before. It's funny because I often watch Bondi Rescue and, you know, and I watch the guys laugh and get frustrated and go, oh, you know, I've told them to leave and get out of the ocean a few times and they don't listen. And it, it, I think when you haven't been in that situation, the people who are, who are swimming in those areas don't actually realise the danger until something happens. It's the same as me. I didn't realise the danger until something that serious had happened to me. So although it's frustrating for you guys, at the same time, there's actually no real concept, especially people coming from different countries they don't understand how dangerous the ocean can be here and they also don't understand the concept of what you guys are trying to do, especially when they don't speak English. So it's, I see the frustration in you guys and now I'm, I keep going, oh, listen to them for God's sake, you're going to get into trouble. It's <laughs> so frustrating watching it, you know, because I almost want to jump in and literally rip them out myself and go, just you bugging them, just get off the beach, you're doing the wrong thing yeah, even with my kids, like I mean, I've got an eleven year old and a nine year old, and I remember going down to Marobra Beach, and they both loved the ocean and they went quite far back, and I didn't have my swimmers, and I was standing on the the shoreline and they went quite far into the waves and I remember the lifeguards were on the left of me and my mom was with me at the time and she walked over to the lifeguards and went oh can you just use your microphone and call them out of the water you know they're getting too deep and the kids then came back and it was such a a relieving feeling to know that we have that luxury here yeah and we have that help so yeah I think that the services are amazing because without that there'd be so many more fatalities
0: so when you came back to see us, you didn't have much memory apart from being in the – when you went into the water and then I suppose the time you woke up in hospital and you – I suppose you had to put all the pieces back together and what happened in between?
1: Yeah, so basically um, what happened was I lost short-term memory for three weeks after it happened um, and when I recovered in hospital um, – the doctors and nurses actually ended up all laughing at me because I kept asking the same questions over and over again, like what time is it? What day is it? Why did I come here? How did I end up here? And apparently you lose your short-term memory, but it's actually your body's way of um, protecting yourself. It's almost like your your memory detaches from the physical to help you recover. And then what happened was after about three weeks – I didn't completely remember what happened. I do remember going under, but I didn't quite remember obviously being saved and resuscitated and what have you because I wasn't conscious. But, yeah, there is your your short-term memory. You do sometimes have short-term memory loss. So I lost my memory probably for about two to three weeks, yeah, and then I slowly started gaining it back over time. So, yeah, it's it's – not a, I mean, a few months after that, I had a dream almost of, of being pulled into the ambulance and being resuscitated, a very vivid dream of watching myself go through the process. And I'm not sure if that's actually what happened or, or if that was my subconscious actually saying to me, well, that's actually what happened in the whole scheme of things. But, yeah, I remember going under. And I remember waking up in the hospital with everybody around me. That's pretty much. And then obviously what happened after recovering in hospital and then coming to meet you guys to say thank you. And, yep, that's pretty much
0: what I remember. Yeah, so when you came back to meet us, we were so happy and stoked that you you, know, you survived and, and you're alive and everything. But what you did after that was amazing. You were so gracious that... You know, you, you supplied a, a rescue board for us, you put on a party for us. And just for listeners that are out there, this all happened before Bondi Rescue even came about. This was way before Bondi Rescue. So you were so appreciative. So is that why you did that for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the least I can do. I still feel I haven't done enough. To say thank you, I mean, what do you do for people that have saved your life, really, and brought you back to life? Like, there isn't, you know, thank you, I feel, like, doesn't cut it because it's, you know, because of you guys, you gave me my life back. You you know, I got married. I met my husband a few months after that. Um, I've had three kids since then. I've basically, you know, had a life that wouldn't have been possible had it not been for you guys. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a huge, you know, just donating the board and, and doing a party, I've, I guess, felt like the least I could do um, to return the favour. I mean, although it's not quite the same favour, you know, it was just a small token of my appreciation to thank you guys for everything you had done, yeah, and just show my gratitude because it's such a... You know, it's such a huge thing to save someone's life. Um, you know, it's not it's not any normal job. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, you give people life back. I mean, you provide them with futures that they wouldn't have necessarily had before. So yes, that's huge.
0: Did you struggle after the fact? You know, months later, uh, with what had happened mentally, or and also getting back in the water, was that something that you struggled with at all?
1: I mean, not so much mentally. I feel like I was just really thankful to be alive and really, you know, um, live each day as it comes and, you know, really enjoy, you know, having a sense of humour to things and being really lighthearted and, you know, because it really gives you, um, you know, places a value on life that I guess you never had before. Um I did get back in the water to swim probably about two or three months afterwards because I wanted to face my fear and I didn't want to be scared of the ocean. I've always loved the ocean. so However, there is definitely a sense of respect for the ocean that I never had before. So in terms of me going in even to swim now – I never turn my back on the ocean. I always face the ocean. I always look for the flags to swim in. I always make sure, like, I look for rips to make sure that there's no rips anywhere near me. You know, when I'm taking my kids out into the ocean with me, I always make sure it's not very rough. And it's quite like we're standing in a safe zone where if anything happens, it would be easy to get out. Um you know, because at the end of the day, the ocean is, it's, it's nature and, you know, nature has a funny way of, um, you know, changing its mind and deciding, yeah, deciding people's fate without them even knowing. And I guess that was the biggest learning experience that I had. Two of them was one, to follow your sense. Um, when, when you have a bad feeling, listen to it. Don't just ignore it. Um Because had I followed my feeling to begin with, standing on the ocean before I went in, I probably wouldn't have even gone in. So I think that was a huge thing. And then the other one is just having respect for nature and for what potentially could happen in those sort of circumstances.
0: Do you think in hindsight now you've had that experience? That's really going to help your kids in explaining what happened to you that they would understand more so than, say, this incident never happened to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely does help in the sense of explaining the dangers. Um, However, you know with kids, um, you can tell them so much, but they, they don't listen. They have to experience things for themselves. And I keep saying, you know, you don't want to get into a situation where you have to experience something like that yourself because the outcome could be very different so you know I'm always telling my kids know the story and actually Dino was one of the lifeguards who saved me and I remember a few years after it happened when I had my kids he had had I think his his first kid and we he lived around Randwick and we actually lived a few doors down from him and we were once at the park I said to my son, who was there at the time, and my daughter, oh, that, that was one of the guys who saved mommy. And I remember my kids walked up to him and said to him, oh, you saved my mommy's life. Thank you. You know, and that, and he actually had tears in his eyes because he couldn't, you know, he, like, couldn't believe, like, seeing my children. He I don't think he knew I had kids. Um, and I hadn't actually seen him since, since the party, and yeah, he was just yeah, it was blown away. He said it was you know that's that's when you you realise the work you're doing is so meaningful. Um, because my kids went up to him and you know I think at the time they were really young, they were only like five and three, and he had I think like his two year old there at the time. And he said, yeah, and he said it was just it just happened at the right time because he was having a rough week. You know, and it happened and he said he just, yeah, he just welled up in tears when it happened and we had had a chat. So, yeah, I mean, there's little things like that that really have had an impact, I think, in me and on some of the lifeguards. Because, yeah, it is. It's you don't realize, I guess, what an impact they've made until you see each other's kids. And, you know, you see that I've got a life now with kids and that would not have been possible without you guys
0: it's a great way that he explained it because we don't always see the person once we've, you know, rescued them or resuscitated them and, you know, they go off and, and you never hear from them again. And, you know, yeah. something that you happen to be living close to where Dino was and, and, you know, we get that emotional side of things too, because it's so close to us that the, the pressure on us each day working. And then when you get a great outcome and, I remember someone saying to me a a while ago that have you ever thought about how many generations that you've saved? And I sort of said, oh, what what do you mean by that? they said, well, you've saved one person. Use you as an example. Now there's generations keep going on because you're alive, whereas if you didn't, it would have stopped that generation.
1: Oh, 100%, and that's like it's crazy because – when I think of, you know, meeting my husband and getting married and having kids, like I've got three kids now to carry the generation forward where had I died, <laughs> that would have been it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big and it's, it's great because, yeah, it sees the potential of, of, you know, more life and you really give people life and you create more life from it because, you know, you guys not being there it could be a very different outcome. And it's, I mean, it's devastating watching the stories when sometimes you watch Bondi rescue, you know, and you see a couple of the people whose families, you know, who who they actually, it's too late and they lose a family member. And it's really devastating to watch, you know, because they just happen to be unlucky and happens to be too late. Um, But, yeah, I'm I'm just really one of the lucky ones. And there's really... Not enough thank
0: yous to give for that. Look, you, you know the, the the thank yous are, are great, but it, it's a part of our job. We appreciate everything that well, all the I appreciate all the things that all the lifeguards do that I've worked with over the years, and yeah. and also um, appreciate what you've done and and understand what lifeguards do, and and it's something that uh, you know it, it gets emotional for all of us, especially even me speaking to you. You know, it's like that. Brings it all back to twenty years ago when, you know, yeah. we're in that critical condition. Um it's split seconds, every split seconds that people don't yeah. realise that it could go one way or the other. And yeah. you know, we've had ones, as you've said, that, that haven't made it, and that that has a massive impact on the lifeguard service, the ones that don't make yeah. it, because you, you end up grieving with that family because that family comes down as well. And yes. it, it does become very hard to sort of deal with you know on a on a daily basis
1: yeah absolutely and i mean and that's where you know you can't control nature like i mean you're there to provide a service and you know to save people but obviously it's impossible to save everybody i mean it's you know that's the way you know nature is and unfortunately I mean, even me when I watch those stories, I get absolutely devastated because I just think of the loss of life and the loss of you know a future with that person, you know, how much it impacts the family. and yeah, it's it's different. like I and that's another thing where people don't see the lifeguards have to deal with afterwards is the emotional effect and you know the therapy and having to actually, you know, feel, and I know that they feel a sense of responsibility even though it's not, you know, it's actually not them. Like there's no there's no reason to feel the sense of responsibility. You're doing a job and, you know, you can't save everyone. But at the same time, I do understand why they feel that because it's their job and it's, you know, they want to be able to save everybody and they don't want uh, sad outcomes, but... Yeah, unfortunately, that's life and that's what happens. But, yeah, I'm just really one of the lucky ones and I feel really blessed to have been
0: saved. Well, Candice, it's great to see you again after 20 years. Uh, Thank you. You too. uh, Congratulations on on the three kids and also um, getting married. So it's something that, uh, you know, we don't hear about and and it's – we got in contact recently to come on the podcast. So I appreciate you coming on and telling your story on the podcast. You're welcome. Now, at the end of the episode, I do a segment called Five Fun Facts. I'm just going to yeah. throw five questions at you. You can answer them however you want, and uh, yeah. there's no wrong or right answer. Okay. okay. Here we go. What are the best and worst purchases you have ever made?
1: Ooh, that's a hard one. I've made a lot of bad purchases. <laughs>
0: um,
1: uh, ooh, the best purchase, um, let me think. Best purchase, probably Netflix. Because <laughs> it keeps me entertained. Um, and the worst purchase was probably um, the most expensive pair of Golden Goose shoes that I bought that ended up being so uncomfortable that I don't know why I wasted the money on
0: them. <laughs> cats or dogs?
1: Oh dogs for sure. We have a dog. I hate cats. <laughs> Just because they um yeah, they, they're very independent. They're not I love dogs. Dogs are man's best friend. Um they love you no matter what um and they're very loyal and they're very protective. I've got a dog who looks after all my three kids when we go to the park and he's very protective
0: and I love it. What are you most proud of?
1: My kids and my family.
0: What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week?
1: Um, Read or seen, probably the most interesting thing is what's going on. It's devastating, but what's going on in Ukraine and the fact that it's happening all over again in 2022 and the fact that the world is not standing up against it and getting involved, yeah, that's probably the most devastating um, but the most interesting thing.
0: What song do you have to sing along with when you hear it?
1: Uh, Happy Days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's probably the one by, by Maxi Priest.
0: Well, Candice, look, it's a pleasure Having you in the beach shack and and on the podcast, and I'm sure all listeners will get a lot out of your story. And you know, it's great having people on that we have you know resuscitated, and and that story just really resonates with a lot of people out there. And I really appreciate your time.
1: You're welcome, and thank you for asking me on. It's a pleasure as always. And yeah, I mean, um, thank you for everything again that you did for me and all the lifeguards did for me. And, yeah, I mean, if I can ever do anything to repay the favour, let me know. Will do. Okay, perfect. Speak to you soon.
0: Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Jesse the Kid Pollock is back. How are you,
2: mate? Good, Hoppo. It's good to speak to you, mate.
0: Now, mate, many years we've done the Rottnest Swim, which for people that don't know where that is, it's over in uh, Perth in Western Australia, and you swim from Cottesloe Beach to the Rottnest Island, which is roughly about 20 kilometres, and we've done a fair few, but Jesus, there's been some good stories come out of that.
2: Oh, mate, the the Rotto Swim, Hoppo, mate, they're the best times of my life. It's uh, four days, of uh, absolute... Uh, how could I say? The best times of your life, but then at the same time, swimming 20Ks is not easy, but you're doing it with your best mate, so it's unreal. Yeah, so
0: we start off early in the morning, don't we? We, we, get, we fly over and do a bit more before that because we generally fly in, Channel 10 get us there, and we do a lot of PR for the, for the swim before uh, it happens on the Saturday. So tell us a bit about uh, our program is pretty uh, rigorous before the swim.
2: Yeah, mate. Um, people who would usually go over there to do the rotto swim would uh would be going over there and you know eating good dinners, not not having a beer and just getting themselves ready for the, you know, the biggest swim of their lives, but you know the thing that we were more interested in at, at that time back then was getting there on the on the Wednesday night to do what we had to do on the Wednesday night and you know Thursday night we would Oh, sorry, did we go Wednesday or Thursday night?
0: We started off on a Wednesday night, and eventually it was the uh, – we got there on the Thursday. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we used to like going out, having dinner, a few beers.
2: Yeah, it was, it was good, mate. And, uh, you know, the the people over in uh, Western Australia were always really, really nice to us. And, uh, yeah, we used to have a ball. And then we would do the – so we would do whatever we would do on the night when we got there, and then we would have a, a kind of a recovery night on the Friday before the swim. But – one thing we used to always do if there was a, a new member that would be doing the swim, we would always make them go off the beach because we used to think, all right, if someone's going to get taken <laughs> from a shark, they're going to get taken for, for, from the, uh, the beach to the boat. <laughs> well, I think yeah, poor, because... poor Maxie had to do that a fair few times, didn't he? Maxie <laughs> had to go off the beach.
0: Maxie had to go off the beach. I think Harrison, Hudson, he, he had to go off the beach as well one uh one time, he snapped his goggles before he went in to do the swim, and that do it without the goggles. But he, uh, yeah, well, the bonus was that three of us would get in the uh, picked up by the car, head down to Fremantle where we get on the boat, and we'd have a lot of banter coming back up towards Cottesloe before the uh, swimmer comes and meets us. And you get a kayak paddler, and yeah, it's, it's we've got the music blaring on the boat, and it's Jesus, it's fun times that early in the morning.
2: Yeah, it's unreal. And then when you like I don't think what, what people don't understand, like the, the Rottnest Swim, there are so many people involved. It's such a big event. Like you come around the point there when you come out of Fremantle Harbour and there's, there's thousands of boats like heading back down to Cottesloe and it's like what you said, you got your music blaring, boats are coming past, everyone's waving. It's, um, it's unreal. That's nearly like an event in itself before you even get in the water.
0: And how was it the first time? Do you remember the first time you ever did it? It was mind-blowing on – one, we stand on the beach and look across the Rottnest and we go, how are we going to do that? And then on the day, as you said, you see all the boats, the swimmers?
2: Yeah, well, I think – like, how can you say? But before you actually do the rotto swim, you know, it's a a big thing. The the day before you need to go down and they do the – Oh, what do you call it? When the, the briefing. They, they do the briefing. Yeah they, yeah, they do the briefing and you know, they're pretty much telling you the, the worst things that can happen. So, you know, they're obviously saying that there's big sharks in the area, you know, you can you can get cut by the propeller off the boat. Just there's just so many different things that they say that could actually really harm you, but they don't actually tell you how fun the actual swim is, which is yeah, which is unreal.
0: And we would do it, what, we'd go probably 10 minutes each off after the first swimmer got out to the boat, which is yeah. about one and a half kilometres. I think, from, w-
2: what did we do at the start? I think what we'd done after the first swimmer to give the first swimmer a break because they do, what is it, two and a half or three K off the bat?
0: Yeah, or, I think it's a bit under two. But it's about one and a half K off the
2: beach. Yeah, so what we would do is we would, would do a, the the first swim for us would do 15 minutes, which I feel like, that was the most probably the hardest swim because, you know, you got so much adrenaline running through you, and you don't want to go too fast because we're most probably changing over to, you know twenty to twenty five times during the whole swim, and if you you know you put it put it in time, it's I think it takes us what was taking us over five hours to do the swim.
0: Yeah, around five hours is yeah. generally the, uh, the the total. But mate, uh, it was pretty exciting and then what about when you're getting closer to the island and you think oh it's not far to go now not far to go but it's still probably about four or five kilometers
2: well that's the worst bit because at the start you know how far you are but once you start to see the island and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger you're like we're getting so close but then you're still so far away and even that last bit when we all have to jump in the water together and swim in because obviously one of the boys will go in and sprint to get to the line the quickest. But the other three would all swim in together. But by the time you nearly get to the beach, you're like, I'm bugging. I can't make it any further.
0: <laughs> Mate, it's a long way. So it's, it's got to be a
2: kilometre. It feels like about five kilometres, but it's about a well, kilometre, I think. Yeah, it. it's, it's the longest kilometre you would ever swim in your life. And then you and then you're thinking you're thinking oh the water's going to be shallow enough to stand up here now <laughs> and then you go to stand up and you're still that deep and then you look like you're a mongo swimmer
0: <laughs> and then your legs not work trying to run up through the chute and uh, yeah. you've been on the boat wobbling around the boat for about five hours and uh, yeah you know, you're in a, in a world of hurt by then but how good is it running up through the chute you've got and as you're doing the swim people are coming past on the ferries they're going over to celebrate and have fun and. And get on the drink with everybody, but how good is it that, that finish line when everyone's around?
2: Yeah, it's mate, it, it's crazy. It's like it's like what I said before. It's such a big event, like like to like. How could you say it's like Nelly? It would be like football players running out, you know, on the footy stadium or ever like at the start of a game. There's absolutely people everywhere. I think it, the rotteness win is most probably one of the biggest events that Perth have like yearly.
0: Yeah, I think it's the. Someone was saying the rotnest island that's probably the biggest party they have alongside of New Year's Eve. I think it's a bit bigger, but yeah it's a massive and how good is it when you you finish we have the shower and uh then we start having a couple of beers and mingling with the crowd yeah
2: it's unreal like the first when you know you have your first couple of beers it's they just go down like water it's because it's a it's a massive achievement like you've just swum like nearly 20Ks, like in shark-infested waters with your best mates. It's, it's unreal. So when you have that first beer, it's its the best thing ever.
0: And then we um, basically just have food and drinks and right through to, you know, pr- probably 10 o'clock at night and before we have to get on that ferry and, and head back to the mainland. Oh,
2: I know. Well, once, like every year, I dread... When we you get the ferry ride's unreal, and we're laughing, we're having banter, and usually after the swim, we make we make a lot of friends at the pub that night. So um, <laughs> we we have we have a great time on the boat on the way back. We're all mucking around, joking, and usually the group we go with we we have a ball team. We have a ball just the four of us who usually go. But I used to dread when you get back to the. Um, the ferry boat ramp, and would have to wait for either a cab or the guys from Channel Ten who would come and get us. Oh, you'd be stuck there forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, it would take a long time, though You're tired. You've had a, a, too much to drink. You just want to go and go to bed, but you're stuck. Yeah. Uh, on on this wharf waiting to get home.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. And then you know you got people that are just blind drunk punishing. Yeah, you know, you got. There's bikes there, people are riding around bikes, and you're trying to get in the cab, someone pushes in front of you. It's, yeah, that that, that one time in Perth when you want to go home, you, you can't get home.
0: <laughs> well, mate, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's unreal. We need to get back and do that one day. I think the, uh, I mean, with COVID, it's been a bit hard to get over to Perth, but pretty much it'd be good to get a team together again and do that down the track.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's uh, one thing I'd love to do again.
0: All right, Jesse, mate, good to have you in the Beach Shack and uh, we'll see you soon.
2: Cheers, Hop. See you, mate.
0: Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter from the mailbag is from Chris and he is uh, from Perth in Western Australia. His question is, how do you find all your guests to interview on the podcast? Well, Chris, it's a good question, mate, uh, pretty much. It's uh, quite random. It's either people that I know or people I know of that can uh, come to me and they say there's, they know someone with a really good story and we chase them up and, and get them that way. Uh, a lot through social media, LinkedIn, uh, people might pop up and tell their story and If I think it's a a good story that will resonate with the listeners on uh, Life's a Beach, uh, I get in contact with them. And uh, even stories in the newspaper or magazines or something that pops up on TV and just uh, identifies a person with a good story. Uh, But really word of mouth is probably the best way that I've been finding people and they've been coming after listening to the podcast coming to me and saying that – You know, I have a person that has a really good story uh, and it also touches on, you know, mental health as well as everybody goes through tough times. So, uh, Chris, thanks again for your letter, mate, Uh, everyone else out there. Keep sending in the letters to the mailbag and I'll try and read them out when we get a chance. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's A Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flag.